Good morning, everyone. I want to remind you that as we come to this time of ministry of the Word, uh, I'll just invite you to take a little break from the masks while you sit and receive the Word. Um, you can turn with me to Zechariah chapter 1. Be reading and preaching from verses 18 through 21. As you turn there, I want to just remind the children. Uh, I hope you received one of the um, one of the children's bulletins. And kids, I'll just tell you that we're going to talk about some some really uh, grown up type stuff today, and it's going to be hard for the grown ups to understand. And so. Guess what? Some of it might be hard for you to understand. So I want to just encourage you to, to listen and, and the things that you don't understand, maybe on your bulletin, write them down or draw them. And later, ask your parents, which means parents, listen, so that you can engage with your children with the ministry of the Word. And in these small ways, we all grow together. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of His Word. Would you bow with me? Father, as we come, I pray for me. I pray for all of us. The words of John the Baptist. I must decrease. You must increase. Father, in the reading and preaching of Your Word, would You cause whatever swells up in us to decrease. May your word, your truth, may your love, may you increase in our hearts and in the world around us. Do this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. And I lifted my eyes and saw and behold four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. This is the word. Of the Lord. How are we, as Christians, to think about matters of injustice? To think about our deep longing for justice? Where are we to take our cues? Are we to take our cues from the culture around us or are we to take our cues from Scripture? What is it that lies at the very heart of injustice in our world and in our own hearts? And are we in seeking justice going after that root or are we merely trying to deal with its fruit? And how? Are we to deal with injustice when it continues to linger in our world? These are hard questions. 
But they are very timely questions, and in the providence of God, He has brought us to the book of Zechariah and to a passage today that speaks to these questions. You may be asking how. This is a, this is a difficult vision to understand, and so let's, let's try as best we can to, to turn to God's Word and understand this vision, and as we do so, Let's start with the imagery, and it is rich with imagery. The first thing we see are mention of the horns. Any Alabama deer hunter knows what's going on here. Because if you have gone deer hunting, how are you measuring your rate of success? How are you judging this deer? The size and number of the horns. That's what you brag about. Or maybe you don't think in terms of deer hunting. Maybe you think in terms of cattle. How do, what do we think of? What's the, the image in our mind when we think of a powerful bull? We think of long horns. Well, if, if you get this, then you intuitively understand the symbolism of the horn. The horn speaks to the power and the might of the animal. And in ancient times, that imagery was applied to the royal context. So oftentimes when a king would be coronated at the beginning of his reign, he would be anointed with oil as that oil was poured out of an animal's horn. The Bible uses this imagery to speak of nations, to speak of kings, Oftentimes, those nations and those kings that are in opposition to God's people. And so here, in this vision the Lord is giving Zechariah, He speaks of horns to represent those nations and empires that have been oppressing the people of God. But what about the number four? (laughs) Look, we just dealt with the easy part, with the horns. Everything else, I'll just tell you, there are differing opinions. When it comes to the number, some would refer to specific nations. And so they might speak to Assyria and to Babylon and to Persia and then differing opinions on the fourth, some Greece, some Rome. But there are problems with that. Because when we try and assign those ancient nations to the four horns, it relegates our interpretation to a thing of the past. And it also misses the way Scripture uses numbers in apocalyptic literature. Those numbers are oftentimes used symbolically, and the number four would speak to completeness. Think of the north and the south and the east and the west, the four directions, the four corners of the earth from which the nations have come to bring opposition and oppression to the people. But what people? Did you notice as we read the text, it it referenced uh, not merely Judah, but Judah and Israel and Jerusalem. This is in the post-divided kingdom, but now in this vision, God is bringing the kingdoms together, and I believe one way that we can understand this is that He's speaking to the oppression of God's people, all of God's people of all time. 
The suppression is described for us then in verse 21. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. We read these words and they have meaning, but they're driven home when we think not of the words, but of the picture. When I train my dog, there are a couple of things that are important in training my dog. One is I show my dog love. But the other is showing my dog who is the alpha dog. Establishing dominance over my dog. And one of the techniques that I was taught and how you do that when you're training your dog is you hold the dog's head down so that he understands who's master. That's one thing if we're holding our dog's head down. But it's something entirely different when we're talking about people. You know that. You know what that looks like because the images are etched in our brains. Recently, as we have a picture of George, George Floyd's head held down, I'm not speaking merely of the issue of police brutality. I'm talking about the oppression of mankind in order to establish dominance over him. It's a picture ripped from the headlines that speaks of the scattering of God's people from Zechariah 1. Do you get it? Do you get the emotion that we are seeing and experiencing? Do you get the hurt that so many in our nation are experiencing right now? Do you feel it? I've asked myself that question, do I feel it? In the vision of the horns, this is the picture that God offers of what the oppressing nations have done to His people. So where is the hope? The hope in this text comes from an unlikely group. From craftsmen. Artisans. We've talked about the oppression of the mighty nations and now God is giving us a vision of artisans. The word translated craftsmen here is used variously in Scripture to refer to metal workers, to, to refer to engravers, to masons, to carpenters. Humble, ordinary workers who in this vision are and will be used by God to bring an end to the injustice of world powers. That's the vision that God is giving us here. But how are they to do this? How are these ordinary common craftsmen to bring about an end to injustice? It's connected to their work. And again, there are differing opinions on how people interpret this vision. Some would look to this as a picture of the craftsmen with their hammers going after and smashing the horns. But I have trouble with that understanding when we begin to think that the picture here is the 
is the, the mightiness of a carpenter's hammer crashing through the horn. Because the craftsmen are not by design instruments of destruction. A craftsman, by design, is an instrument of construction. In the Word of God, the craftsmen were specifically gifted by God to fulfill a trade and a purpose, oftentimes constructing the temple. They were ordinary men using ordinary means to accomplish an extraordinary work. And so in Zechariah's day, the craftsmen were called to rebuild the temple of God. That was the day that Zechariah spoke into. But in our day, we know all too well that the yoke of injustice was not broken in that day. So we have to understand that there must be a bigger interpretation to this vision than merely the craftsmen who would rebuild the temple in that day. The craftsmen using simple, ordinary means to do an extraordinary work are called not merely to construct the temple in Zechariah's day, but to construct the church, the bride of Christ. To gather together a redeemed people who then will be instruments in the Redeemer's hands. The craftsmen overcome the horns by building something more powerful and more beautiful. But when? When will this work be accomplished? The text says that the craftsmen will terrify the horns. And so we want to cry out, How long, O Lord? The message that Zechariah had for the people of his day and for the people of our day is not one of timing. But don't miss this. It is one of certainty. And the people then and the people today need to know that this removal of the yoke of injustice will happen. So as we consider that certainty and that timing, we need to put it in the context of a fundamental truth that helps us understand and deal with the world in which we live now in terms of racial injustice, in terms of all forms of injustice, and that is the framework of the now and the not yet. Jesus established the kingdom of God at His first coming. We've spoken of it in the past few weeks. The kingdom of God is at hand. But the kingdom of God is not complete. And so we understand this ordinary movement of the craftsman in the context of Jesus' work in the now and His ultimate work in the not yet. So we work for justice now. We long for justice now, but it will not be complete until glory, so we trust in Him. In the now, the kingdom grows in the hearts of believers. As we come under the rule and the reign of the kingdom, the kingdom grows now through the work of conversion. In the not yet, sin will be eradicated and the final judgment will come. These now and not yet implications extend. They, they inform our hope and our work. And so we, we tried to understand a little bit of the vision, but let's, let's move on to, to apply the vision. As we think about applying the vision, I, I, I want to consider it from, from two perspectives. 
Because you see, we all need the craftsman. But we are also all called to be craftsmen. Let me start with the redeemed people of God who are called to be instruments of justice in the Redeemer's hands. That's all of us. So take note. Again, did it strike you that God is using in this vision the picture of craftsmen? When you heard it, maybe you read this passage before coming today. Did, did you scratch your heads trying to figure that out? Surely there must be some hidden power and might in the craftsmen. Surely they must be walking around with bazookas in their backpack or something. There's got to be some secret to what they're doing. Actually, I think it's just the opposite. Actually, I think what the Word is telling us is that in their ordinariness, they are overcoming injustice. We don't like that. We, we actually, I believe, would prefer to fight a horn with a bigger horn. You know the image of, of two rams fighting, just running at each other, horn on horn? And we think that in that battle, the, the bigger ram with the bigger horn is going to win. And something within us prefers that vision. But the vision that God gives us is of instruments of justice that will work in simple, ordinary ways. And so as we try and apply that, can we for a moment consider it in the context of the racial injustice that we see in our land? And I hope you see it. I hope you're not trying to minimize what you hear. This week, um, I shared this with you in our midweek devotion, but our denomination put out a webinar on Thursday afternoon that was led by a diverse group of African-American, Korean-American, Latin-American brothers who were representing sadly, uh, a study paper that they did two years ago dealing with racial reconciliation specifically in our denomination but broadly in our world. And these brothers thoughtfully and prayerfully led us all toward racial justice. It reignited a conversation. This is not new. Racism and and racial injustice is not new and neither is its root. Racism is a sin that is sadly as old as time and it arises out of hearts that have sought to worship at the altar of self rather than the Creator who in His wisdom And beauty has created a world with a wonderful diversity. And in that diversity, we speak to the beauty of God. All mankind bears the image of God. But no one man fully bears that image on his own. It takes the entirety of mankind to reflect fullness of God. 
So how are we to engage? Let me ask you this. Over the past few weeks, have you been stirred? Have you been re-stirred? The reality of racism in our, in our world and in our own hearts. I hope so. I pray that you are not beset either with apathy or with hardness of heart. Yet, at that same moment, many of us are tempted to rush to respond. Oftentimes, acting out of a secular ideology rather than a gospel theology. And I'll just tell you that the secular ideology that we're so tempted to respond with ignores the root of sin in our hearts. At best, it ignores the root of sin in our hearts. And at worst, it fights sin with sin. But on Thursday afternoon, our African-American brothers encouraged us thoughtfully and prayerfully to fight in ordinary ways with the gospel. Actually, I believe it's the message of this text that the craftsmen the Lord is picturing for us are called to construct the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ through simple ordinary means, the simple ordinary means of grace, the ministry of word, the ministry of prayer, the ministry of sacrament, and the ministry of gospel fellowship. And so can we try and apply this vision towards this issue of racial reconciliation using those simple ordinary means and understanding that as we apply in this area, it goes broadly as we fight injustice in our world. Consider the ministry of the Word. When we proclaim the Word, we are proclaiming the Gospel, and the Gospel throughout the Bible affirms the universality of sin. That our hearts are born, we are born with hearts at war with God darkened by sin and seeking only self, and therefore the Word of God affirms the universality of the need for a new and regenerated heart. So the entirety of the Word points us to the call to repentance, a call that we've already seen in Zechariah, a call that is seen throughout Scripture and faith. And the beauty of the Gospel tells us that God's electing grace brought about as as He works in us repentance and faith. He applies to us the atonement of Jesus Christ whereby our Savior has taken the punishment for that sin and works in us a work of transformation. The Gospel tells us that when God works in our hearts, He does not leave us the way He He found us. He changes us. He transforms us so that through this new heart we receive new life. We must affirm that call as we engage the sin of racism in our own heart and in the world around us. Fighting sin with the Gospel. And anything else is simply redirecting one form of angry sin for another. Friends, stand for the Gospel. And consider it in your own heart. It's an ordinary means of grace. And the simple ordinary means of grace, of prayer. Our wise brothers 
on Thursday afternoon encouraged us to seek racial reconciliation that is driven by conviction and not by shame, guilt, or condemnation. If, if we seek racial recon- reconciliation motivated by shame, guilt, and, com- and condemnation, it will become a passing fad that will last as long as those winds of condemnation blow. But emotions are temporary. They are a fickle passion that will last as long as the media cycle. And so our African American brothers called us to develop a deep conviction formed through a season of prayer and lament. Prayer of confession. Prayer of asking the Lord to direct our hearts. Prayer for one another. Prayer for the nations. Prayer for the diverse peoples of our own land. And prayer that our body would reflect the beauty and diversity of God so that the call to racial reconciliation would be motivated by worship. Not pragmatism. Again, the craftsmen are depending on the ordinary means of grace. The ordinary means of grace, of gospel-centered fellowship. I've had to fight the temptation to speak first of late. If I would speak first, I would be speaking out of my own experience. My own experience informs but it does not complete my understanding of this issue of racial injustice. The core of gospel fellowship is the call to know and be known. And I fear that in our world we have lost the ability to listen. We walk around with the equivalent of a message board on our chest either through social media or simply our unwillingness to listen because we're focused more on proclaiming what we believe, talking about us, than listening and engaging. At the core of gospel fellowship is is developing a curiosity founded on love for one another. Is rooted as I've been teaching our young children in a confirmation class in our reconciliation with God the Father. If I am reconciled with God the Father through God the Son, and my African American brother or sister is reconciled to God the Father through God the Son, then guess what? We are in one beautiful family. And a family fellowships together, a family knows one another. The gospel calls us to love one another, to engage in knowing, word-centered, gospel-informed fellowship. It's simple. It's ordinary. And it's long-term. But over the long term, these simple, ordinary means of grace or how God has ordained the growth of the church so that hearts will be shaped. And through that ordinary ministry... Sin will be exposed in my heart as it has been over these past few weeks and in the hearts of others, pointing us all to Jesus. I I, I get it. 
I, I get it. That some of you hear this simple, ordinary means of grace ministry uh, pictured in a craftsman going to battle against a horn, and, and you want to yawn. Uh, maybe you're saying to yourself, it's not working. To which I would say, we need to acknowledge our need for greater conviction. But we also need to go back to the biblical framework of the now and the not yet. I've mentioned it, but to more fully understand it, we've got to consider it from the perspective of the oppressed. Those oppressed by injustice, which once again is all of us. See this call to receive hope. All, that's right, all of us at some time, in some shape, form, or fashion, have experienced a measure of the oppression of injustice. Maybe it was at the hands of an abusive employer. employer. Maybe it was a sexual discrimination or even sexual abuse. Maybe it was racial. Racial discrimination or racial abuse. All experience the yoke of injustice because of the pervasiveness of sin in the hearts of mankind. Our sin and the sin of others. But this vision calls the people of God to take confidence in our God. And though it may seem counterintuitive to us, the Lord promises to topple the horns of injustice through humble, unassuming craftsmen. In Zechariah's day, the humble, unassuming craftsman did the work through the proclamation of the Word of God and through the construction of the temple. In our day, the craftsmen similarly do their work through the simple, ordinary, steadfast proclamation of the Gospel pointing us all to a hope that is found outside of the craftsman. That's right. The the vision is pointing us to the craftsman who will topple the horns, but the hope is not in the craftsman itself. The hope is found in the one whom the craftsmen are pointing to. Again, to a humble carpenter who resisted the calls of the people when they sought to capture him and by force make him a military conqueror. Jesus' ministry was not focused on overthrowing dictators, though they existed. Jesus' ministry was focused on dealing with the sin in our own hearts. Overcoming the horns from within. And so is this ministry enough for us? In Jesus... Friends, there is hope in the now. And that hope is a hope of union with Christ. It's the hope of a reconciled relationship with our Creator. And through Him, reconciled relationships with one another. Friends, in the now, we do have the hope of justice. But it's the birth pangs of the final justice that is to come. It is a justice that we taste in part now, but there remains the promise of the not yet. I recently watched 
a documentary. It's a disturbing documentary called Filthy Rich. It was the story of a billionaire named Jeffrey Epstein who was a perpetrator of child sex trafficking. As the documentary progressed towards the end, there was a movement towards Epstein's final arrest. And they interviewed the victims of his uh, sex trafficking and, and they were hopeful that they would see justice finally come. But in the days after Epstein was arrested and while he was still awaiting trial, he reportedly committed Suicide, And as this documentary uh, began to interview the victims after this suicide, they were crushed thinking that once again, this perpetrator of such sexual violence upon them had once again evaded justice. They longed for justice and thought that they had missed their opportunity because Epstein had died before he stood trial. And everything in my heart wanted to cry out, no. No. Because though there is the promise of justice in the now, there is the finality of justice in the not yet. The vision that we read spoke of craftsmen who will terrify the oppressing horns. But you see, the horns need to see Jesus in the not yet. And so do the victims. Revelation chapter 1, the the Apostle John, who was one of Jesus' best friends on earth in the now, got the chance to see his Savior in the not yet. Revelation 1, beginning in verse 12, Then I, John, turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. Friends, the Lord sends to Zechariah's people and to us a vision of hope. It's a vision of hope meant for people who have experienced the oppressive hands of injustice. And in His timing, and in His manner, He will provide justice. A justice for those who repent and believe is a justice that He has taken on Himself. But for those who are hardened by the sin of racism and by the sin of idolatry in all its many forms, for those who are hardened, that justice will come by His terrible swift sword. So in the now, the manner may seem ordinary, but it will come to a terrifying conclusion for the oppressors. 
So for those who are instruments of justice, take note. And for those who have been and continue to be oppressed, receive hope. Lord Jesus, You are the first. And praise be to God, You are the last. And at Your hand, justice will be served. And we praise You that by Your love and by Your grace for those whom You have loved from before the beginning of time, that justice is the justice You have taken upon Yourself. And so I pray that if there are any this day who are hardened in sin and running away from You, that You would break that horn in the now to bless us in the not yet. Do this, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen.